So, who knows what happens on Thursday, this coming Thursday. <laughs> That's right. Now, if there's one thing I've noticed generally about the culture of Cincinnati so far since we've moved here is that Halloween is a big deal. Uh, much, a much bigger deal than anywhere I've lived so far um, compared to Bloomington, compared to uh, Indianapolis, the two places I've spent a lot, large portions of my life is that here, Halloween is a big deal. Um, and who can tell me what Halloween is? Do you know? <laughs> yeah, good. You're jumping ahead of us there a little bit. What is Halloween? Does anybody know what it is or what it's supposed to be? Any guesses? What do you think it is based on all the things that you see? <laughs> the day of death, says Mr. Bettinghouse. That's what it looks like, doesn't it? It looks like a day of death if you just drive around. Our neighborhood is kind of scary right now, honestly. Um, and that's because Halloween is a holiday in the Roman Catholic Church. It used it, for a long time, for hundreds of years, has been a holiday for um, remembering those who have died and actually praying, praying and offering up prayers for those who are dead. Um, and it turns into a lot of idolatry and worship of wrong things. It turns into a lot of love of death and of dead things, which is not honoring to God, um, which I'll mention in a minute, but uh, Liam mentioned something else that happens that happened a long time ago on October 31st. You guys know something in history that happened very important about 500 years ago on October 31st. Yeah, you know? Yeah, very good. Yeah, Martin Luther, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, nailed a very long list of theses um, on the door of a church in Germany. Um, and what do you guys know what the 95 theses are? What they're about? Anybody know? Yes, you do? Can you list them off for me? <laughs> do you know what they're about, Liam? The 95 theses? Yeah, yeah, about what the church was doing wrong. Um, and in particular, uh, Martin Luther um, was engaging with one particular issue in these 95 theses that he wrote, and that was that the Roman Catholic Church was doing something called selling indulgences. Selling indulgences. Now, what are indulgences? Well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches, still teaches, that even after your sins are forgiven by God, you still must suffer certain temporal punishments for your sins. Roman Catholicism teaches that you receive forgiveness from eternal punishment when you get baptized, but there's still a price that needs to be paid for the sins that you commit in this life. And that price is some kind of quantifiable, measurable punishment that you yourself must endure either in this life or in purgatory before you can enter heaven. Now, this is still, if you look up the, the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, this is still what they teach. Um, and this is where indulgences come in. According to the catechism of the Catholic Church and indulgences, now fasten your seatbelts, okay? An indulgence is this, ready? A remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, 
which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. You guys got that? Well, let me translate that. What that means is that when a Christian commits sins, which we all do, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that we incur a certain measurable punishment due to our sins. And because of that punishment that we owe for our sins, we have three options. This is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. We have three options because of the sins that we commit. One is that we have to suffer some punishment for that sin in this life, some tangible punishment. Option two is that after a person dies, he can suffer in purgatory for a certain number of years. Purgatory is a place, a supposed place of punishment that you go before getting to heaven. That's option number two, is that you can suffer in purgatory before getting into paradise or into heaven. And by the way, this teaching of purgatory is where a lot of the things of Halloween come from, is that because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that there's a place that dead people go before they get into heaven, there's a lot of praying to dead people that they might get through purgatory, or even trying to communicate with the dead, which is something that God says that we ought not do, is that once people have passed from this life, they're gone and they're, they're away from us. But because of this teaching that there's a, a, a middle spiritual realm that people go, we've be, our culture has become obsessed with death and the love of death. But Scripture says that those who love death hate God, because God is a God of life, and we must be very careful. And you, you might run into issues of how you navigate Halloween with your own kids, which we do. It's like, what, you know, it's, it's all around us. What do we do? Where we've settled, if it's helpful to you, is it's fun to dress up in costumes and things, but we're going to have nothing to do with the love of death involved in Halloween. The kids got vampire teeth at the, the neighborhood Halloween party last night, and we said, nope, sorry, no vampire teeth. We can dress up as superheroes, but we'll throw those in the trash. Um, and you have to figure out what lines you want to draw for your family because there are things, especially in a culture like this, I think it's a, a particular thing in a place like this where it's so loved um, that you need to think about your family and how you're going to teach your children that we love the things of God and not the things of the devil. So option number two for the Christian who sins is that you suffer in purgatory. Now, this is not true, right? This is what the Roman Catholic teach, Church teaches. Option number three is to go to the church and acquire a prescription of certain conditions under which you may get your punishment remitted by God. Now, that's an indulgence. The Roman Catholic Church claims to hold the keys to what they call a treasury of merit, which contains all the prayers and the good works of Jesus, plus all the prayers and the good works of Mary, plus all the prayers and the good works of all the saints who have come before and who went above and beyond the call of duty and were so righteous that they had righteousness to spare for others. The Roman Catholic Church claims to have the power to take some of that extra merit from Jesus and Mary and the perfect saints and to apply it to you if you go through certain motions. Maybe say a particular set prayer or visit a special place or do some specific good work or in Luther's time, pay a certain price. And that's what was going on in the church at Luther's time is that people were being charged exorbitant amounts of money to get this so-called indulgence so that their sins would be forgiven. 
Now, if you ask a Roman Catholic today about what was going on at the time of the Reformation, they will probably acknowledge that there really was a problem going on with the sale of these indulgences. They'll say, yeah, it probably wasn't a good thing that members of the clergy were extorting the poor through the selling of indulgences. But indulgences themselves, those are still very much a part of the Roman Catholic system of righteousness. But the problem Luther saw was not actually with the selling of these indulgences. The problem was the very idea of indulgences. Whether or not they're sold for money, here's what indulgences do. They make our sin, our guilt before God, quantifiable and measurable. And that's a problem. Now, most evangelicals, most Protestant Christians, when we look at the idea of indulgences in the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, we probably think, gross, how awful that they would make people feel so guilty by making such a big deal out of sin. You know, thank goodness the Reformers came along and helped us realize that we don't have to feel so guilty because we now know that God is gracious and merciful and actually forgives sin. But here's the thing, the problem that Luther saw with indulgences was not that they maximized our guilt before God, not that they made us feel more guilty. The problem was not that indulgences made too big a deal about sin. The problem was actually that indulgences minimized sin. Indulgences put a quantifiable price on our sin. They said, your sin is worth this much. This is how much debt you owe to God because of your sin. Indulgences put a measurable bound on the debt that I owe to God. Indulgences teach me that when I sin, I owe God a finite, quantifiable debt, and that therefore I can do something to pay off that debt to God. I can trust in my works and my righteousness to merit or earn forgiveness of my sins from God. In fact, righteousness is so achievable through the efforts of man, some saints have lived such perfect lives and so completely paid their own temporal punishments for sins that they have some extra merit to share with me. This is something else that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, is that some people have been so good that they have extra good to give to me so that my sins can be forgiven because of the good things they have done. That's like saying if you were taking a test... And someone got, you know, they were so good, they got over 100% on the test. They got extra credit, and they took some of their extra credit and gave it to you, so you could have a perfect score on your test, too. Has anybody ever had that happen on a test that you've taken? Someone got extra credit, and it got given to you so that you got a perfect score on the test? No? You wish that had happened? Yeah, I bet so. Um, the problem with indulgences is that they make light of sin by teaching us to trust in our own righteousness. Indulgences actually denigrate the holiness of God and exalt the goodness of man in his ability to please God through his own works. But this is not what God teaches us about the way of salvation. We're going to look at our scripture this morning, which is Romans chapter 3, which hopefully will go up on the screen behind me, or you can turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. Good. And this is what Romans 3 says. It says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Anybody tell me what an asp is? Yeah, it's a snake. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, whose mouth, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, we're going to talk today about the doct- what's called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Okay, now that's a really long, fancy-sounding thing. But this was one of the central doctrines or teachings of the Bible that was argued about during the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation was a big fight. It was a big battle in the church 500 years ago, and it was a battle over truth and what the Bible really teaches. And it was an important battle to be fought. And one of the biggest things that was fought over was this doctrine or this teaching that Scripture teaches us, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The fancy Latin for this, some of you might know, is sola fide, which means faith alone or only faith. But we have to say at the outset that these two words, faith alone, mean very little without explaining what we mean by them. Faith alone. What do you mean by faith? Faith In what? Faith alone? As opposed to what? Where does faith come from? There's a helpful way to beef up this phrase, which tells us a lot more about what we mean and what we're talking about, and it provides an outline for our preaching today, okay? So I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And this is, this is the outline of the sermon today. And we're remembering what was the battle that was fought before us and still applies to us today. And this, 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 okay? So, Justification, we're going to talk about what each of these things mean. Justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, the, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not primarily a mental exercise. Um, it's, not, it, it's not just an exercise of theological precision. Um, James Buchanan, a writer, says this. He says, The best preparation for the study of this doctrine is neither great intellectual ability nor much scholastic learning, but a conscience impressed with a sense of our actual condition as sinners in the sight of God. I'm not here this morning to deliver a theological lecture to you. And if I only succeed in engaging your mind and I don't engage your heart in your conscience, and make you aware of your actual state before God as a sinner, I will have failed. Okay, So please pray for me. Though it is important to be able to articulate and talk about what justification by faith is and what it means, it's worth saying here at the beginning 
that being able to explain and articulate the doctrine of justification is not what justifies you in God's sight. I'm going to say that again. Being able to articulate and explain the doctrine of justification is not what justifies you in God's sight. That's not what makes you right in God's sight. My goal isn't to give you a perfect formula for defining the doctrine of justification by faith alone. My goal is to point you to the object of our faith, which is Christ Jesus. Because even if you have the perfect theological formula memorized, the doctrine of justification will mean nothing to you. In fact, it will be damnation to you unless you are aware of your sin and of your need to be justified in God's sight. Now, today, many preachers are robbing people of the knowledge of sin. It's my temptation as a preacher of the gospel to avoid ever bringing the law of God to bear on your conscience because it's just plain dirty work. We want to skip, I want to skip to the hope and the relief and the joy and peace with God and not press into the reality of our condemnation before God. Many preachers will talk about the law of God, but few will preach the law of God, such that you feel the weight of it. But as we delve into what it means to be justified in God's sight, my first task is to show you that the absolute last place you should look for hope and peace and joy is within yourself. Allow me just for just a moment, not just to read Romans 3 to you, but to preach it to you. There is none righteous, not even you. You do not understand. You do not seek for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become useless. There is none who does good, not even you. Your throat is an open grave. With your tongues you keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under your lips. You whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Your feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in your paths. In the path of peace you have not known. There is no fear of God before your eyes. Do you believe those things to be true of you? Have you ever acknowledged that those statements of condemnation are true of you? If not, then the gospel message of hope that follows these statements is not for you either. God says there is nothing inherent within you that is deserving of his favor and kindness. Yes, you were made in the image of God, but you have corrupted, defiled, and shattered that image such that you have no place in his kingdom. By nature, you are a child of wrath, full of wrath and cursing and bitterness and sitting under the wrath of God. You were born an enemy of God. God the judge has declared you guilty, condemned, sentenced to death. The good news is there is a way to be justified in God's sight, even with all of those things being true of you. Well, let's talk about what justification means. What do we even mean when we say justified? Well, very simply, justification means man's acceptance with God or his being regarded and treated as righteous in God's sight. Yeah, perfect. Good job. And this justification is a legal reality. It's a reality of law. It's a legal declaration by God the judge. And this declaration by the judge carries with it the full weight and authority of the law. Now think about a courtroom for a minute, okay? 
Imagine you've got an innocent man who is falsely accused and prosecuted for a crime that he didn't commit. Imagine that this man, this innocent man, is brought to trial. Evidence is presented, and in the end, the judge makes a declaration that the man on trial is not guilty. Now, is that man innocent before or after the judge made that declaration? He didn't do the crime. The judge declares him not guilty. Is he he not guilty before or after the judge declares it? Before, that's right. He was innocent before the judge ever said anything, right? He was always innocent, but the declaration of the judge carries with it the full weight and protection of the law itself, such that that man is shielded from further accusation. Legally speaking, what ultimately matters to that man is that is the judge's verdict that he really is not guilty. You can imagine a similar situation with a guilty man. If that man committed a crime, let's say he commits murder and he is guilty. But it's only when the judge declares him to be guilty that he becomes subject to the penalties of the law. Legally speaking, what ultimately matters is the judge's verdict once evidence is presented and that man is proclaimed guilty. Now, to be justified in God's sight is to be declared, regarded, and treated as righteous in a complete, absolute sense in regard to God's law. It is to be declared not guilty in God's court. But it's also more than that, actually. Justification means not just being not guilty, but it also means being righteous. When we stand justified before God, he considers us to be righteous according to his law, as if we had fulfilled everything in it to the fullest and earned the blessing, blessings and rewards of his law, which amount to eternal life. John 3.16, which I hope you know, shows us both of these, these realities. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's right. Good job. Two things happen to us when we're justified before God. One, God declares that we shall not perish, and he also declares that we will have the reward of righteousness, which is life forever. To be justified in God's sight is not simply to have a clean slate. It's not that we get to retake a test that we failed the first time, right? No, to be justified is to have our failure removed and to have it replaced with a perfect score on that test. In this verdict, this declaration from God the judge is final. It's a sure thing and it's a completed action. And this is another significant difference between the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification and the biblical doctrine of justification. For the Roman Catholic, justification is a process. For the Roman Catholic, sanctification or the Christian's gradual growth in holiness by definition is a part of his justification, making justification itself a gradual process. But Romans 4 says, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God justifies you, when he makes you right, he once and for all changes your identity. He declares you to be his son, 
and not a child of the devil. To be a slave of righteousness and not a slave of sin. To be his friend and not his enemy. And once God the judge has made that declaration, nothing can change it. Just like no one can change the fact that my son, Whitaker, is my son, no one can change the fact that God has regarded and treated you as righteous through his son, Jesus Christ. Justification is a man's acceptance with God or his being regarded and treated as righteous in his sight. So the second part is by grace alone. The question is, how is this justification, grant, justification granted to us? And the answer is, by grace alone. And what does that mean? Well, we see it in our passage this morning. Romans 3, in verses 23 and 24, says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know the next part? Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. To be justified by grace is to be justified as a gift. God does not owe you justification. It's something he freely, by his own choice, decides to give. And notice how closely tied those two realities are in the passage we just read. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. For the sinner, there is no access to righteousness apart from God's free grace. Adam forfeited our right to peace with God when he rebelled against God, and we daily add to Adam's guilt. Don't forget the charge against us. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are dead in sin, which means that we are entirely dependent on God by his own will to bring about our justification. In the primary way that God makes it clear that justification is accomplished by his grace and not by our efforts is the fact that justification happens through faith. Okay, so that's the next part. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone. Romans 4 says that for this reason, righteousness is credited by faith, for this reason, so that it may be in accordance with grace in order that God might demonstrate that we are justified by His grace, by His power, by His will, He made faith and not works the means or the tool of granting us righteousness and justification. Faith is not a work that we perform in order to earn God's favor. In fact, Ephesians 2 says that our faith doesn't even come from us. It itself comes from God. And faith is simply belief or trust in the gracious promises of God. Faith means humbly laying aside any and every attempt to justify yourself or make yourself right in God's sight and trusting entirely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we have many ways that we seek to justify ourselves, all of which come from a desire to boast in ourselves and our own works rather than in God. The teaching of Roman Catholicism that justification is achieved through baptism, yeah, faith, and baptism, is so enticing. Isn't it alluring to think that you can have assurance of your salvation by the concrete fact that you got baptized? If it were only that easy. But what is baptism? Well, it is a work. It is something that we do. 
It is a necessary aspect of Christian obedience, and you must do it, but it does not justify you. It is a response to God's grace, not a means of acquiring God's grace. And to place baptism into the position of justifying us or acquiring God's grace is to boast in our works. Over and over again, Scripture sets justification by faith over and against justification by works. Here's a few passages from Scripture. One that we just read from Romans 3. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, apart from things we can do, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Galatians 2 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. 2 Timothy says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But we are full of self-righteousness, and we are always looking for ways to justify ourselves instead of letting God justify us. Jesus rebuked the Jews of his day for their self-righteousness. Paul rebuked the Galatian Christians for putting confidence in the works of the flesh. Luther and Calvin, 500 years ago, rebuked the leaders of the church for devising fleshly means of acquiring salvation. Today, how is it that we seek to justify ourselves? Where do you go, another way of asking that question is, where do you go to convince yourself that you have peace with God? What tangible things that you have accomplished or can accomplish or think you can accomplish are you tempted to trust in rather than trusting in Christ? When you're made aware of your sin, where do you run for comfort? Do you run to Jesus Christ and the forgiveness found in his blood? Or do you run to your own works to comfort you? Do you think any of the following things will grant you peace with God? Maybe these are things that you look for peace with God in. Maybe giving a certain amount of money to the church. Maybe going to the right church. Maybe going to church every week. Maybe participating in the Lord's Supper. Or having lots of children. Or disciplining your children the right way or eating the right food, or feeding your children the right food. Maybe you seek comfort in the fact that you manage your money well and prudently. Or maybe you're sending your kids to the right school, or the right kind of school. Maybe you're friends with the right people on Facebook. Maybe you associate with faithful men and good pastors. Maybe you've come from a godly cultural heritage. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian family, and that's what you look to for comfort and peace. Maybe you feel right before God because you're an American. Or maybe you feel like God accepts you because you're white, or because you're black, 
or because you're a woman, or because you're a man. Or some of us may even be more subtle and sophisticated in our self-justification. Do you think you're justified because you possess a right understanding of your sin? Or are you justified before God by your discernment? Do you seek to soothe your guilty conscience by being able to accurately identify and point out other people's sins? The sins of our culture, maybe, or the sins of other churches. Or maybe you feel like you're justified when you're able to explain and articulate the doctrine of justification. Well, many of these things are important aspects of the Christian life. Some of them are not. Um, But none of them justify you in God's sight. These works of ours must never become the ground or the foundation of our peace with God. Because as soon as our obedience becomes the foundation of our peace with God, we lose hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we set ourselves self-righteously against His grace. So we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, if you're really spiritual, I'm using that word facetiously, based on Pastor Bailey's sermon the other, the other week, if you're really spiritual, but still self-righteous, you may even be tempted to put your faith in faith. You may fall into thinking that it's your faith itself that is pleasing to God and that earns you points in God's eyes. But that's actually not the case. Faith itself is not even what justifies you. And let me explain what I mean. I'm going to read a quote from an old guy named Horatius Bonner, which says, he said this, Faith, then, is the link, the one link or connection between the sinner and the sin-bearer. Who's the sin-bearer? Yeah, Liam. Jesus, that's right. He's the one who bears our sin, the sin-bearer. Faith is the one link between the sinner and the sin-bearer. It is not faith as a work or exercise of our minds, which must be properly performed in order to qualify or fit us for pardon or forgiveness. It is not faith as a religious duty, which must be gone through according to certain rules in order to induce or convince Christ to give us the benefits of his work. It is faith simply as a receiver of the divine record concerning the Son of God. It is not faith considered as the source of holiness, as contained in itself the seed, containing in itself the seed of all spiritual excellence and good works. It is faith alone, recognizing simply the completeness of the great sacrifice for sin and the trueness of the Father's testimony to that completeness. God connects, this is still from this quote, he says, God connects salvation with believing, trusting, knowing, remembering. Yet the salvation is not in our act of believing, trusting, knowing, or remembering. It is in the thing or person believed on, trusted, known, remembered. Nor is salvation given as a reward for believing and knowing. The things believed and known are our salvation. Nor are we saved or comforted by thinking about our acts of believing or ascertaining that it possesses all the proper ingredients and qualities which would induce God to approve of it and of us because of it. And then he uses this illustration. He says, I get light by using my eyes, not by thinking about my use of them, nor by a scientific analysis of their component parts. 
So I get peace by and in believing, not by thinking about my faith or trying to prove to myself how well I have performed the believing act. We might as well extract water from the desert sands as peace from our own act of faith. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ will do everything for us. Believing in our own faith or trusting in our own trust will do nothing. Thus, faith is the bond between us and the Son of God. Faith is nothing save as it lays hold of Christ. You can have faith in a lot of different things. You can have faith in yourself. You can have faith in science. You can have faith in your knowledge. You can have faith in another person. But what we need to have is faith in Jesus. And I think this is Jesus' point when he tells us that faith the size of a mustard seed is sufficient to move mountains. When he says that, it's a rebuke to our self-righteous confidence in ourselves. But it's also an encouragement to the humble and discouraged that it's not even about the strength or size of your faith and how easy it is to despair when you look at that, right? When you try to turn faith into a work which earns you God's favor and you look at your faith and you think, how incredibly small is my faith? How can I be justified in God's sight? But it's not your faith that earns you God's favor. Jesus Christ possesses God's favor. He has God's favor. And those who put their faith in him also unshakably possess God's favor and blessing. Faith is just the means by which we grab onto the perfect thing, which is Jesus Christ. When you doubt the strength of your faith, don't torment yourself trying to determine whether or not your faith is perfect enough to earn God's favor. Look to Jesus Christ, the sinless one, who bore our sins on the cross, who paid the full price for our sin, who grants us perfect access to God's family. In a minute, we're going to be celebrating communion. Um, and part of what I'll be reading as the liturgy for communion says this, probably my favorite section of what I'll be reading is, and although you feel that you do not have perfect faith and fail to serve God as you ought, yet if by God's grace you are sincerely sorry for your sins and infirmities and earnestly desire to fight against unbelief and to keep all his commandments, then be assured that your remaining imperfections do not keep you from being received of God in mercy. He himself making you worthy partakers of this heavenly food. It goes on and says, For we do not come to this table as righteous in ourselves, but we come seeking our life in Christ, acknowledging that we live in the midst of death. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith, of our hope, of our trust, of our confidence, of our belief. Our faith must not be in anything else, not in our own goodness, not in the goodness of any particular good work that we have done not in being a Jew or in being white or in being black and not in growing up in the church, not in being outwardly associated with the church. Our faith is in Jesus Christ himself, in his death which atones for our sins. As this passage in Romans 3 put it, in the propitiation in his bloods, in his blood, in his perfect obedience to the Father which grants us access to eternal life and fellowship with God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this justification reality that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it never goes away. This isn't a truth of your life that you sort of 
move beyond that this was something that applied to you when you first became a Christian, and now you move on to other things. It is the constant foundation of our hope and our peace with God. Once justified, it is so very easy to start to put your hope in yourself. This is what the Galatians fell into, and Paul rebukes them for it in Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Once we are justified in God's sight, we begin a life of obedience to him. But it's not a life of earning our way into heaven by the works of the flesh. It is a life of living into the reality of what God says is already true of us. We are his sons, slaves of righteousness, friends of God, not because of works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord.